Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each episode we have a look at a movie that we've chosen to watch based on a link to the previous film. I'm Madeline Gould and I'm here as ever with Ed Howes. Hello mate, how are you? I'm grand, how are you? Uh, Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Um, What have you been watching, Ed, since we last spoke? So, uh, yes. Three things I want to talk about. Yeah, I'm going to leave the big one till last. So two things I want to sort of mention quite briefly. Uh, I'm going to leave one to last because I think you went to see it as well. Uh, just to piss on your bonfire. Oh, um, you didn't? We, didn't? we didn't get to see it. Because of the flooding, we didn't get back to Nottingham in time to go. Oh. So um, And now Richard really wants to go, which means I've got to wait for him to be free. So um, piss and bollocks, shitty death. I can't wait to hear what you've got to say about it. But um... yeah, uh, well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll make it um, brief and uh, spoiler-free as possible. Thank you. <laughs> um, but no, other things that I want to mention. So, so first of all, we got a recommendation on Instagram from Rich Pieces. Uh, this is uh, Rich Johnson, who I think you know. Yes, um, Rich Johnson is um, an absolute legend. He is one of the course leaders at the Broadway Cinema. Excellent. Well, he hit us up on Instagram to recommend Deathline from 1970. Uh, it's a little horror movie starring Donald Pleasance and has a brief and very strange cameo from Christopher Lee. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he, he, Christopher Lee shows up in one scene and is very strange and is he never shows up again. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed it. A sort of real grimy British horror from the early 70s. Amazing. Sort of exactly what you want out of that kind of movie. So I, I, I liken it to, we had a brief uh, chat about the film Creep recently yes so there, there are two films called creep one that is one of your sort of halloween recommendations for this year and one of which i have actually seen yeah which is an earlier film so i liken deathline to that earlier creep oh uh, right okay so deathline is about uh, there's a series of disappearances that take place at russell square station yeah and what what's happening and uh, oh somebody's been violently murdered there is something living in the tube <laughs> essentially <laughs> Um, that sounds so great. It's great. I think I think you'd really, really love it. And Donald Pleasance is yeah. fantastic. Really great as this sort of Is he ever not? Donald Pleasance, he's always great. I've never seen him not be good. But yeah, I think I think he's particularly good in this. He as this sort of uh jaded, vaguely chippy police inspector. Um sure. who like <laughs> I really love um, odd odd acting choices. At some point in the process, Donald Pleasance decided to play this character with a cold because in every scene, <laughs> at some point, he takes his hanky out and, and blows his nose. Every scene. I just love little acting choices like that. So, um, yeah, Deathline from 1972. I fully recommend that you watch that. And for anybody who is into sort of grimy 70s horror, that's a bit of a, a, bit of a forgotten gem. Amazing. 
amazing. Um, and thank you, Rich, for uh, for recommending. And please, listeners, do send us your recommendations because we'd love to gobble them up. Yeah, get, get your recommendations coming in to the Instagram account or indeed to our email account, uh, which is moviechain at outlook.com. <laughs> Beautifully done, Ed. Beautifully done. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> We're getting better at this shit. <laughs> Uh, the other thing that uh, I wanted to mention, um, dystopian future movie called Death Race 2000, starring Sylvester Stallone. Um, this is from the <laughs> 70s. Well, uh, Sylvester Stallone and David Carradine, actually, is the lead. So, yeah, I've, I've watched this on an empty train. Three shits to the wind, as I say, coming back from London. And it it's not good. It's not good. It's, you know, it's, I'm uh, not surprised somehow. <laughs> yeah, no. I was hoping for something along the, along the lines of uh, rollerball or uh, at least sort of the running man. What I got was... So I described it to somebody as if um, uh, George Orwell had had a lobotomy and decided to write wacky races. That's basically what happens. <laughs> Death Race 2000 is what would come out of that. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, there's really nothing to recommend it. Even I thought there might at least be some uh, some fun stunt driving. So it's all about this this road race, this uh, road race that takes place in this dystopian future where you get certain amounts of points for running people over. Okay, uh, and that's that's basically the whole like um, Grand Theft the Auto. Uh, well, so I mean, you don't you don't usually get points for running people over in Grand Theft Auto. That's the only thing I've ever done when I've played Grand Theft Auto is run people over. Sure, it's like I play play Red Dead Redemption and hog tie some nuns and then I'm bored <laughs> do, you leave, do you leave them on the train tracks <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well now what <laughs> uh, seriously if you're going to play Red Dead Redemption you you, you should follow the storyline because um, it is stunning the most recent yeah one. sure it I is mean, absolutely fair, stunning I've never owned a copy of Red Dead Redemption to right. I've only ever like had a quick go when I've been around at someone's house which yeah, exactly like I have with Grand Theft Auto I've never owned it so I, I've sure. only ever hogtied nuns or um, run pedestrians over <laughs> <laughs> Which, which is fun for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does get boring after a while, you know. It does, it does. You, you, you need you need uh, some other stuff happening. You need plot and things. Yes, um, yes. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention, big release in the cinema at the moment, uh, went to the Electric Cinema in Birmingham to watch... Uh, Martin Scorsese's new one, Killers of the Flower Moon. It is three and a half hours as far it as I'm aware. It is three and a half hours, yeah. Do you feel those three and a half hours or...? Um, you do. I wasn't... I don't think I was ever bored. What are my thoughts on Killers of the Flower Moon? It's... Um, on the one hand, it is a stunning piece of filmmaking. It, mm. it, it just is. Yeah. Every shot you look at is absolutely beautiful and it's it's a really well-told story uh, mm-hmm. and it keeps me... It kept me engaged throughout. It is... So a couple, a couple of things. You go in and you're aware all the way through partly because of uh, Martin Scorsese's public persona these days mm. but partly because of the tone of the film you sit there and you watch it and you are very aware that you are watching a piece of serious filmmaking you know what I mean yeah I know what you mean it's I think a little dry so it's not high energy caper like something like Departed or Wolf of Wall Street because it, it goes at its it goes at its, uh, at its own pace it takes its time part of the reason that it's three and a half hours long I think some audiences will struggle with it, but I think it's a really accomplished film. Also, <laughs> yeah, so because it, it's a true story, um, mm-hmm. it's adapted from a work of nonfiction. You know that thing at the end of films where it's based on a true story and you get those sort of words up on the screen saying... June went on to be admitted to the University of such and such. And exactly, all that stuff. This doesn't do that, but it, it, it deals with that in a very mm-hmm. clever and unexpected way. 
um, that actually hits you quite hard. Okay. Yeah, the the way it ends is really great. Okay, um, awesome. Yeah, so mixed bag. I really, really liked it. Yeah, I uh, just wanted to point up uh, Lily Gladstone, who mm-hmm. is fantastic in it. There is almost certainly a Best Supporting Actress nomination coming her way, along with probably uh, Florence Pugh and... Emily Blunt for mm-hmm. uh, for Oppenheimer and those two because they're in the same film might end up cancelling each other out is it worth seeing it in the cinema oh yeah definitely funny because Scorsese insists that people do we have to do what Scorsese tells us we do we do we have to adhere to the great Martin <laughs> no it is it is absolutely worth seeing in the cinema because if it's sheer length and scale and scope if you watch it at home it's too easy to oh pause it I'll go make a cup of tea. Oh, I need to go for a week. Go do that. Oh, let's get a bed. I'll watch a rest tomorrow. And, you know. Google that actor. Yeah. Inevitably, it's not going to be absorbing in the same way. Also, it looks gorgeous. So, yeah, yeah, look at it on a big screen. I will. And that's Killers of the Flower Moon. Well, uh, since we last spoke, um, Mm, I've been to a whole film festival. Oh, well, I say I've been to a whole film festival. (laughs) I've been to most of a film festival. (laughs) Yeah, you, you, you... Text me just like, I'm not sure I can do the last day. I'm sort of half dead now. (laughs) Yeah, I was. Um, uh, You know, in my 20s, I would have been able to. But um, it was so, yeah, um, I don't particularly want to talk about any of the films that were part of the film festival, particularly. Mm -hmm. I just kind of want to wax lyrical briefly about why film festivals are so awesome and why if you're into films and you've never been to a film festival, I just highly, highly, highly recommend it for the experience of doing it because Mm -hmm. the buzz around the community. Yeah, it's just a really special thing. And it's also, I think, if you're interested in film, there are very few periods in your life where you will get that total immersion. Mm -hmm. You know, most of the films that I saw over the course of the film festival were films where if I stuck it on at home, I probably would check my phone a couple of times or I would be like, Google it. Like I always, when I'm watching a film at home, I'm usually, I've usually got IMDb open so I can look up what everyone's been in and all this kind of stuff. It's quite hard to really properly focus on something. And when you're in a cinema full of a load of people and, and you literally, it's, back-to-back films, occasionally with a Q&A or um, a sort of special introduction by somebody. And you're there with people who have thoroughly researched everything and you're there with people who literally don't know what they're watching. They are just, they're just there for the ride and they will look at the film and think about it after they've seen it, but they don't even know what it's called. It's just like, right, next, next, next. It's so, it is overwhelming. It's a very intense experience, but I, I just loved it. I was in my happy place. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't go to the final day um, of movies, mostly because I was exhausted and there was nothing on the billing that made me want to kind of push through the exhaustion. Uh, I was feeling slightly mutinous even on the, the second day, but I had to go because Hundreds of Beavers was on. Um, yes. And I, was, I wasn't going to miss Hundreds of Beavers uh, for any money. Go on, t- tell us about Hundreds of Beavers. <laughs> Oh, it's great. It's um it, it's right. They keep describing it as a silent film, which is not correct. It's a film with no dialogue, which mm. is different. It is a black and white, basically a cartoon slapstick comedy about a bloke trying to catch some beavers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the snow and a bit of, and I kind of can't really say much more than that it's so there are some excellent gags it's really it really is funny it made me laugh a lot there is there's some excellent kind of like fascist imagery with the beavers building their dam which is very I mean I think if you wanted to you could do quite a deep reading of this film but I sure. just sat back had a 
blast watching it. It's so much fun. And watching the ingenuity of some of the practical effects that they've done, the way mm. that they've blended animation with live action. It's honestly, it's just such a joy. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. <laughs> <laughs> if you just want to go and have a rip roaring good fun time at the cinema, really, really go. Uh, but yeah, no, I just, I mean, God, how fortunate am I that there is a film festival and particularly it's, it was a um, horror cult and sci-fi film festival as well. So yeah. that's right up my street. I'm so lucky that I've got one in my home city, but it made me look at what um, film festivals there are going on around the country. And um, mm-hmm. very, very shortly coming up, there's a film festival in Leeds, Birmingham. What's uh, what's coming up in Birmingham? Uh, it's, um... it's just the Birmingham Film Festival. Yeah, With a load of stuff. And I think most of the screenings are free, Ed. Shut the front door. Hello, listener. It's Gould here from the future. I just thought I should pop in some actual information about the Birmingham Film Festival, given our lack of knowledge about it at this stage. Um, If you are interested in attending the Birmingham Film Festival, it is indeed free to attend. It runs from the 17th to the 26th of November 2023. And you should visit birminghamfilmfestival.co.uk to have a look at the lineup. Um, It looks great go and um, we're in no way affiliated we just love films i tell you what one of the best things about the whole film festival was the short film showcase which was one of the bits that i absolutely would have just missed but it was like i i felt quite emotional <laughs> because mm. the talent and vision and just the quality of the filmmaking it was so exciting and inspiring and moving and like that was just a small selection um uh, we saw 15 um short films and i know that they had about 200 submissions that they had to watch to whittle it down it just i feel do feel quite emotional (laughs) (laughs) thinking about all the people out there who were having these incredible ideas and properly by the bootstraps like with Mm. no money scraping something together every single film had something really special about it some of the films were let down by really poor acting I would say. Um, But every single film at its heart was a really quality concept and some of them were just executed slightly better. Yeah, it just, it made me feel like, I don't know, grateful and a bit emotional. That's, what a lovely way to be. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. And like, everyone was there really like willing every single film to be their new favourite and it was just such a fucking great atmosphere. So yeah, I implore you all to find a film festival and go to it, even if you just go for a day. In order to watch the film that we're going to talk about this week, I had to get a Paramount Plus subscription. Uh, Sorry, I didn't have to get a Paramount Plus subscription, but I just thought, you know what, if I get a free month out of it... You got a whole free month? I've only got seven days. No, uh, what I mean is... Um, I have paid for a month, which is like six ninety nine, oh. and I was like, okay, well, I'll just watch as much as I can for six ninety nine. Um, so this morning, and I won't say that I watched it because that wouldn't be entirely true, but on <laughs> on, on the TV in the room that I was in um, yeah. was Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Oh my god, yeah, okay, <laughs> it's rubbish. But it's got um, it's got um, David Duchovny and Henry Thomas in it, and I was no like, way. lads, what are you doing in this shit? film like they they... (laughs) must have spent their entire budget on getting to Kovny because 
it, I'm not sure. He doesn't. He doesn't do many movies. And like, why would he do this one? And that's because like, he good. wanted to do a movie. I guess he. I presume he doesn't yeah. get offered. I presume that's why he doesn't do movies because he doesn't uh, get in decent offers. Uh, I think Hollywood thinks of him as a TV guy. Ah, I see. I see. Is what I would suspect. Oh, that makes a certain amount of sense. He was just sort of there in a flannel shirt. <laughs> sure. It's interesting actually when when you watch those early episodes of the X Files, you sort of you watch David Duchovny learning how to act in real time it's, it's really interesting because those like really early episodes are rubbish um, <laughs> like, or he no they're, they're not rubbish he's rubbish in them but he yeah, he sort yeah. of learns how to do it anyway um, should we talk about what we came here to talk about I think it's a really good idea so last episode we talked about Frankenstein from 1931 uh, it was my turn to choose a follow up um, and I followed the route of resurrection and reanimation which took us to Pet Cemetery from 1989 Ed would you care to do as a synopsis <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah so you've got 103 seconds and your time starts now okay so lewis creed and his family move to a new house in uh somewhere in new england it is after all a stephen king where after they move in it, they they decide oh this is a wonderful house we really like it here oh that's a very busy road of trucks right next to the house oh are these trucks gonna constantly go past oh yes they are <laughs> that sounds dangerous. Um, like within five minutes of the film, the little boy has almost been run over, foreshadowing, uh, but is saved by the neighbour, Judd, uh, played by the wonderful Fred Gwynn, classing the place up with his acting. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so he, he becomes a good friend to the family um, and for whatever reason, takes them to go and see a pet cemetery, at which point the daughter, the daughter is called Ellie, um, she starts worrying that their cat is going to get run over and die oh dear what do we think is going to happen next oh well the cat runs over and gets died and gets died gets gets died gets deadified gets gets deadified um (laughs) (laughs) so lewis doesn't want to upset his daughter he doesn't know what to do um so judd for reasons really passing understanding which we'll come on to Mm -hmm. uh takes Lewis to the other pet cemetery on the other side of uh, a whole big pile of sticks um, from the normal pet cemetery. They, they bury the cat there and then it comes back and the cat has come back with big yellow eyes, which means it's evil now. And it sort of attacks people and stuff. And oh, ooh, this isn't right. And it gets it's a smelly cat as well. So um, Ellie doesn't really like him anymore. What happens after that? Oh, they go fly in a kite. And then, oh my goodness, the little boy gets run over by a big truck because the driver was listening to the Ramones while uh, instead of mm. instead of paying attention to the road. Big grief. There's a fight at the funeral. And then... <laughs> um, Judd Crandall comes along to Lewis. He's like, I know what you're thinking. Don't take him up there. Something's, you know, you should be better off dead. No. Most of the family goes away, leaving Lewis there to tie up loose ends, he says. Um, <laughs> after which he he goes to the cemetery in the middle of the night, digs up uh, his dead son, uh, goes and buries him in the other pet cemetery. At which point the son comes back as the most adorable zombie in cinema history. It's and true. Uh, kills everybody. And that's Pet Cemetery. Fabulous. <laughs> you did a beautiful job, Ed. I mean, you did talk for three minutes, but it's fine. Was it three minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? Damn. <laughs> 
We were talking before about how we were going to have quite a lot of fun having a chat about this film, which uh-huh. is a weird thing to say considering it is about child death. It is. I mean, it's it's about all kinds of death, really, isn't it? Before we get into the meat of it, would you mm-hmm. like to take us through some housekeeping? I'd love to do some housekeeping. So, uh, Pet Cemetery. Uh, it was released on April the 21st, 1989, directed by Mary Lambert. At that point, she'd mostly done music videos uh, for people. She'd worked a lot with Madonna. So she did a lot of her music videos, including the one for Like a Prayer, which is the really controversial one for It's Blasphemy, daring to cast a black man as Jesus. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she continues to work to this day, mostly in sort of TV, uh, like some TV episodes and TV movies and stuff. Her last theatrical feature, as far as I could tell, was The In Crowd in 2008. Yes. The screenplay? Uh, is by Stephen King who adapted his own novel the 14th, his 14th novel uh, it's his third screenplay after Cat's Eye in 1985 and uh, Creepshow in 1982 it's produced by Richard P. Rubinstein uh, who had been producer on uh, both Dawn and Day of the Dead uh, it also produced both the Creepshow movies which I assume was where he met Stephen King in mm-hmm. the first place uh, so he, he hasn't produced very much for a long long time but he's got an executive producer credit on uh, the most recent Dune movies but if you look at the list of producers on those movies they are so extensive and I think it's because I think it's probably a hangover because he produced the TV movies of Dune back in the uh... late 90s uh, so I think that's sort of a hangover from that he must still have some rights or whatever the DOP is Peter Stein uh, who had worked on Friday the 13th part 2 and went on to be the cinematographer on the Hulk Hogan movie Mr. Nanny so <laughs> there is a possible option for our next episode <laughs> Stop teasing me, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's uh, edited by Daniel P. Hanley and Mike Hill, who have worked together as a team pretty much constantly throughout their careers. Uh, Quite a lot with Ron Howard. Uh, They've worked on loads of Ron Howard movies uh, since his 1982 movie Night Shift. So that includes um, Apollo 13 and all those Dan Brown movies that Ron Howard's done. Uh, And also, (laughs) actually, my my favourite Ron Howard movie, Backdraft. Have you seen Backdraft? I have seen Backdraft. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, I prefer... I, I would watch Backdraft before I watched Apollo 13 today. Oh, yeah, no, ditto. Um, but that only tells you what a low opinion I have of Apollo 13. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Name some other Ron Howard movies. I can't, I can't think of any now off the top of my head. Oh, God, Ron Howard. What's he done? I mean, I'm just going to repeat the ones you've just said back at you, Ed, if I'm left to my own devices. I can't fucking Brilliant. think. What's he done? Right, well, in that, case, in that case, I'm having Backdraft as my favourite Ron Howard movie. You're allowed. I can't remember any of the others. Actually, Fair no. Enough. Do you know? Um, I'd watch. I'd watch The Da Vinci Code before I watched Backdraft. Uh, I'm not going to sit through The Da Vinci Code. It's so shit, uh, and yeah. I quite enjoy it. And often I feel like The Da Vinci Code is the only film that'll do. <laughs> like it fills a very specific niche of shit film for me. W- what I want sometimes is Tom Hanks with with long floppy hair explaining mm. the plot as he walks through rooms. That's Sometimes that's just what you want. And then you want him to do exactly the same thing but having had a haircut. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, Tom Hanks' <laughs> hair in those movies is strange. It's it's one of the most remarkable things about the movies. Take from <laughs> that what you will. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm going to stand by my no damn brown movies. Ron also. Howard gave us Ewan McGregor parachuting onto the roof of the Vatican. I mean, I can't. What, what more do you want? <laughs> Quite, yeah, no, sure. Please, okay, take, well, car- carry on. Carrying on. <laughs> okay, so the production designer, Michael Z. Hanan. This was actually his first credit as production designer. He's still working today, mostly in TV, but he had he did some quite big stuff in the late 90s and early noughties. Uh, he, he was production designer on Blow uh, with uh, Johnny Depp and uh, Penelope Cruz. 
Mm. And uh, also on Ronin with Robert De Niro. Art director is Dins Danielson. Uh, his first credit, and this was quite exciting to me, was The Hitcher starring Rutger Hauer. Have you seen The Hitcher? No. Oh, my God, Gould, you've got to watch The Hitcher. You would love it. Like, seriously. Okay. Oh, fantastic. It was remade with Sean Bean. That's the one I'm thinking of. Um... Yeah, no, watch watch, watch the original with Rutger Hauer. I, I don't mind the remake, to be fair, but watch watch the original. It's Yeah, it's yeah. Um... Anyway, uh, yeah, Dins Danielson, also still working today, uh, quite recently was art director on uh, Better Call Saul. Uh, oh. Set decorator is Kathy Klopp. She's got some absolutely marvellous naff movies on her CV, <laughs> um, including Masters of the Universe with Dolph Lundgren and Courtney Cox, um, and <laughs> Under Siege 2 with Steven Seagal. <laughs> uh, yeah, so some wonderfully naff movies for fans of naff movies like I am. Uh, the costume designer, uh, Marlene Stewart, she also worked with Mary Lambert on music videos for Madonna, so she would have been dressing up Black Jesus in the Like a Prayer video. Also costume designer on Terminator 2, uh, Top Gun Maverick, Oz the Great and Powerful 2, if that ever gets made, and Night at the Museum, which I think would probably have been quite a good fun job to costume. Oh, yeah. The score is by Elliot Goldenthal, who actually has quite a limited CV for um, film scores, but he did win an Oscar for his score for Frida mm. and got nominations for his scores for the Liam Neeson film, Michael Collins, and for Interview with a Vampire. So, yeah, quite a well-thought-of composer, but with quite a limited uh, CV when it comes to films. And finally, we really mustn't leave out for this film the special makeup designer, Lance Anderson, who has done all sorts of things. He was part of the makeup department on The Thing. Uh, that's John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, and also the thriller video of Michael Jackson. Mm. Um, but if you want to see uh, like some of his actual work that is his work, he was the prosthetic makeup artist for Goldie Horn on Death Becomes Her. Oh. Um, and also did the prosthetic work on Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, which I don't often have nice things to say about Zack Snyder, but I think his Dawn of the Dead's all right. That is high uh, praise. <laughs> that is, uh, for, for me, talking about Zack Snyder, that is high praise, my goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lance Anderson also came up with the iconic makeup designs for The Crow and uh, Dead Presidents. You know, D Dead Presidents, the heist movie, you must have seen uh, shots. If you Google Dead Presidents, mm -hmm. I'm sure you'll be like, oh, yes, that's, I know that movie. I've, I've seen those pictures. 1995 film. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, that Lance Anderson's design. Uh, yeah, the film was made for a budget of 11.5 million and it took at the box office 89.5 million. Dead all so, right. Yeah, quite. Quite the financial success. Which yeah. is why they decided to make a second one. <laughs> yeah, which I've not seen. Have you? Did you watch the sequel? I did not watch the sequel, no. Excellent. <laughs> we shall say no more about that then. I didn't feel the need. <laughs> no, it's, it's almost certainly not necessary. Um, so just to round this out with the cast, we've got Dale Midkiff as Lewis Creed. Fred Gwynn as Judd Crandall. Uh, we gave Fred Gwynn a sort of sideways shout out last week when we mentioned the Munsters, because he was, yes. of course, Herman Munster. He's so great. He's like, so we'll, great. We'll come on to this, I'm sure, but Fred Gwynn saves this movie for me. He really, really does. He really, he's really like, does. yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he, yeah, he's, he's, he's the only one who's like doing actual acting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The rest of the cast, we've got Denise Crosby as Rachel Creed, Brad Greenquist as Victor Pascal, uh, Michael Lombard as Erwin Goldman, Susan Blomert as Missy Dandridge, Mary Louise Wilson as Dory Goldman, Andrew Hubatstek as Zelda, Blaze Berthel as Ellie Creed, and Miko Hughes as Gage Creed, the most adorable zombie in movie history. That kid is unbearably cute. <laughs> it's, it's disgusting. 
Uh-oh. 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 <laughs> so cute. <laughs> when, when at the end, after he's been um, in, in, injected with the syringe, he's like, uh, what is he saying? No fair. Yeah, no yeah. No fair, Daddy. Apparently the um, director had to really fight to cast him because the studio was so set on having a pair of identical twins um oh, which is right, often yeah. often the case it's in the um, case, yeah. in movies and tv uh, in fact um for the daughter ellie played by a pair of identical twins really? but gage apparently was so just extraordinary and i do think that that kid has got something special about him if gage had been shit it would have been real bad <laughs> um i just uh, was reading this morning um before we get on to the kind of the actual film itself um in terms of getting the film made um and i don't know if you read this but um, I just thought it was particularly poignant given what's going on at the moment with the writers and actor strikes. The reason this film got made is because of the 1988 strikes. Basically, the uh, producer, one of the producers on it, she had been pushing to get it made for ages, but by 1988, it was considered that the kind of, the time for Stephen King adaptations was over. There had been a real glut of them and uh, the studios were like, now we're sort of done with this. Then she went over to be an executive producer at Paramount and apparently they in a meeting where people were pitching that her boss was like i know that you're gonna say pet cemetery don't even think about it like no not doing pet cemetery (laughs) and then obviously the the strikes came up and no no new scripts were being written and so Mm. studios were desperate for scripts that were already written and were perfect as they were and were ready to be shot and that's how she kind of managed to convince them to make pet cemetery because as far as she was concerned the script as it was was perfect nothing needed to change but that just brings me on to my first question ed which is Mm -hmm. um perfect script how do we feel about that Um, all right, so the film itself, in a lot of ways, is not very good. I agree. I would say. But I think in some other ways, that works in its favour. Interesting. Because it's a film that actually, as a piece of horror, does kind of work for me. Because, like, particularly if I compare it to the... Uh, recent version of Pet Cemetery. This version of Pet Cemetery, I feel really unsafe as a viewer, and that's kind of what I want. Whereas the recent version, I feel really comfortable the whole time I'm mm. watching it and a little bit bored. Whereas this, actually, I'm never bored, partly because I'm like, and I don't trust this movie to look away at the right moment, because <laughs> 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 and there's there's just there's something there's something in its inherent crapness as a piece of filmmaking. Um, and I include in that the really sort of all the elements actually from the script up to the way the actors are directed, the way it is edited, some of the design of the mm-hmm. of the sets. There is a sort of inherent crapness. It makes it feel sort of low rent and scuzzy in a way that I kind of appreciate. Yeah, because it puts me on edge the overall design of it is a little bit haunted house yeah. kind of walk through in a way it, it does complement what's going on in the plot but in a way I, and again I, I really don't want to compare it too much to the original novel but you kind of can't not can you and I think one no, of the things about the original because he's done the adaptation himself well this is the thing now because I, I feel like the novel is an absolutely exceptional piece of work one of the things I think that's amazing about it is how normal all of the extraordinary stuff that happens feels yes. whereas in this it all feels a little little bit like someone's got a theremin out and is going like Ooh. <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> yeah, we're sort of very much in, um, ooh, we're in a creepy movie kind of territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do also feel like the script, I think, is very clearly written by a novelist. I think it's a very unsuccessful screenplay because it hasn't adapted itself to a new medium. He's He's been too literal with trying to pack everything that happens in the book into a screenplay um, without kind of considering what needs to be cut and what needs to be included. One of the big examples is the fight that breaks out at the funeral, which is what you've briefly touched on. You know, you say like those trucks going by from the second they arrive at the house, you know that that little boy is going to get hit by a truck. You just know it's going to happen. And the rest of it, you are waiting for this awful inevitability to happen. And in the book the the fight at the funeral has an inevitability to it because you've had all this build up and the build up's yeah. quite subtle whereas i felt like in the film it was like what <laughs> yeah no it's completely <laughs> completely out of nowhere when they yeah. yeah there's been a mention of oh your dad's a prick your dad hates yeah. me that's sort of it and that suddenly there's yeah justification for this fight at the funeral that yeah it, yeah it, it doesn't yeah it, it didn't happen justified. it comes out of nowhere it felt like we turned the corner in our silly little kind of haunted house dodgem car there's a little boy's hand has fallen out of a coffin but it didn't have a kind of that sort of hollow dread feeling that you get from reading it in the book it had that kind of like feeling <laughs> and that made it feel cheap and it made it feel like the boy's death was being exploited for like cheap thrills in um, a quite a naff, goofy horror movie. And yet, at other points, like for me, one of the absolutely most successful scenes in the film is when, um, oh, what's he called? Lawrence Pad- pa- Pascal. Pascal, yes. When Pascal um, comes in injured, like that makeup effect of his injury, his head injury is so, and it is so shocking. And especially because we've just had this beautiful, lovely, squashy kind of chocolate box hallmark, kiss on the drive, goodbye, darling, have a good first day isn't it beautiful in the sunshine and then bam it punches you in the face with guy's head is half hanging off i know the most horrific makeup design with this Mm. injury and that to me was so successful as a jarring like like that jolting back and forth between two different tones was really great and then pascal for the rest of the film i was just like fuck off mate (laughs) oh honestly Uh, yeah, Pascal's road trip. Pascal's he's, big day out. <laughs> he, he's so cheerful for so much of it. That whole that whole section where he's helping Rachel get back. Yeah, he's so, he's so sort of jolly and cheerful, and like he's got this smile on his face. I, you know what? I would watch a TV spin-off of Pascal's road trip around America, sort of hitchhiking round, seeing the sights, visiting the diners. You know, with like his brains hanging out of his head. I'd watch that. Helping ladies make their connections at airports. <laughs> Yeah. Interestingly, and um, I did, I did splash out the one ninety nine to watch the documentary about the making of Pet Cemetery, which was mm-hmm. by and large extremely boring and didn't offer much new information. But um, they had an interview with the actor who played Pascal, and he was saying how he was um, really determined that Pascal would not—he wasn't a ghost; he was an angel. And so he had images of angels all over the front of his script to remind mm-hmm. him that he wasn't there to be sinister or evil. He was like a helpful presence. And I was like, sure. well. That's very nice. I wish that the director had caught that and and pointed him in a better direction because for me, that does not work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't Um, didn't read Angel off him. I read sort of Helpful Ghost, you know. Yeah. A bit bit, bit like Casper. (laughs) (laughs) I was able to fill in a lot of the gaps 
in the plot from having read the book. And I think sure. if I didn't know how to fill in some of those gaps, I think mm-hmm. that I would be more confused and um, a bit more sort of pissed off. Oh, that's interesting. What what gaps? What well, gaps like, do you think um, needed filling in? Like that relationship with his in-laws that led to the fight at the funeral. Oh, yeah. Um, I really missed the presence of Judd's wife. And I think that her absence makes Judd into a slightly different kind of character. And I think mm-hmm. that that's something we should talk about because... Judd as a character I mean obviously a lot of that goes down to the unbelievable performance (laughs) just like layers on layers and layers of class on top of this absolutely naff movie I I said I said he shows up classing up the joint with his acting and I absolutely mean it how dare he show up and actually be good in this movie he he brings warmth to Mm -hmm. the film and he's the only he's the only person who does bring any warmth to this movie actually it's the only character that isn't entirely charmless If I'm perfectly honest, and that's not just in the performances, it's in the writing as well. Yeah, of course. Um, I think one of the big problems with the script is just actually how unpleasant everybody is to each other, like all the time, and some of the nonsense they come out with. Yeah, the creeds as a couple. And I don't remember feeling like this in the book at all. So this is purely the um, the film. They're just like a smug, generic, successful, yuppie. Just, mm-hmm. I just didn't give a fuck about mm-hmm. either of them. Like, and I don't care whether their little girl loses her cat or not. And I don't care. I ca- obviously I don't want to see a toddler get run over by a truck. But I was also a bit like there was no heart to them at all. And was that in the performances or the writing or what? What was what was that, Ed? It's in the writing first and foremost, actually. Like they, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's there's a scene where they're having breakfast, I think it is, and the little girl's worried that uh, the cat church is going to get run over. That's never going to happen, is it, Daddy? You promise? And the mother's like, "Go on, promise." Promise your daughter that your cat's never going to get run over and die. I think I can probably credit Jem for this, actually. I think because she watched it with me. Mm. She was just like, that, what sort of mother is she? You cannot make that promise. And then his whole response is to make that ridiculous promise mm-hmm. and then sort of get in his wife's face about it and be like, yeah, but if he does get run over, you're the one who has to break it to her. I'm just like, oh, these people are terrible. So there's that. Also, it's not it's not limited to the two of those. Um, little Gage, he's a little shit. He's yeah. sat there in his high chair throwing shit at his sister and nobody's like, stop doing that. <laughs> nobody's like, yeah, take that off him. Uh, at, at one point later on in the movie, just, just before Gage gets run over, actually, his sister shouts at him that he's a stupid shit or something like that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I think that was the point that I just I wrote in my notes. This whole family is awful. And that's in the writing before we even come on to the performances. It's a hangover from the book, but too much has been cut. So because it, that exchange about like, go on, promise your daughter that the cat won't ever die and all of that stuff... That is absolutely to do with one of the core kind of conflicts in the book, which is to do with the fact that Rachel, who has a proper phobia of death, is married to a doctor who Mm -hmm. confronts it and deals with it every single day. And he has this very strong kind of philosophy that it is important to confront it as early as possible to get used Mm -hmm. to the idea that it isn't something to be frightened of. She is petrified of the idea of death and won't allow and it's like that's all really interesting in the book there is plenty of time to develop that to see inside Mm -hmm. the characters heads to all of that stuff but the film has cast that stuff aside and yet retained 
one of the arguments about it. So all we see is two terrible people making really bad choices about how to parent their children. I think what it is, is with a screenplay, there is there is room for quite a lot. But you've got to be really subtle and intelligent about how and when you weave those conflicts in. So you have to weave those conflicts into other scenes when other things are going on little by little by little. Mm. Rather than, and this is the scene where they have this argument. And this is the scene where they go and visit that. And this is the scene where that happens. You Mm -hmm. have to sort of actually be a little cleverer about how you interweave those things. And do you actually need a whole scene that is this argument? Or can you weave that in somewhere else a friend of mine describes it as setting hairs running uh, it's that's kind of mostly a thing for tv but in terms of screenwriting it's that thing about um setting your hairs running and then just being really clever about when you catch them later and that's it's nice. like all that stuff about b- setting stuff going bedding stuff in really subtly really early on but i feel a little bit like instead of setting any hairs running in this you know in jurassic park where the goat's leg hits the windscreen it's oh, just yeah. like that happens over and over and over again and you're like hang yeah. on i didn't even realize there were any goats <laughs> in this film but they're smacking me around the face all bloody i don't get it <laughs> like, it all feels very very shallow which then means that later when stuff that is a little bit deeper starts coming up in the plot like the reveal of zelda um like the reveal of the kind of animosity between lewis and his um father-in-law all of that stuff it's that it just feels really like what you didn't prepare us for this yeah (laughs) this has come out of nowhere like you say it has to be very subtle but it can be done because stephen king is absolutely extraordinary at doing that in his novels but he can't translate that he oh in in this case he hasn't translated that well into um a screenplay it's a it's a totally different beast he's used to having the space to sort of drop those things wherever he wants internal monologues and omniscient narrators and stuff you can sort of do what you want in a novel but yeah you've got to be a little more nimble i think in a screenplay i love that word ed nimble that feels very true um and also like um concise but also Mm. trust your audience and trust your actors and this to me feels extremely prescriptive both for the audience and for the actors and then the actors aren't really do the actors in this feel very much like um talking walking props they don't feel like humans a lot of the dialogue in particular uh is has got a sort of disjointed sort of stilted quality yeah it it sort of feels unfinished and like not actual human conversation (sighs) do we have to come on to the performances you know i don't like doing this i know let's let's breeze past it no i I feel like i feel like we have to the thing is i think both of us would agree that Mm a you can't say that a performance is bad and that's what that is because when you're looking at something on a screen it is the edit it's the Mm -hmm. script it's all sorts of stuff that go into a performance and whether or not a performance is any good or not Mm. i wouldn't i don't think that these performances are actively bad i just don't think they're good enough you think they're Mm. actively bad don't you not all of them (laughs) (laughs) okay who's your main culprit actually if i'm if i'm being perfectly honest i think most of the cast is sort of fine and they're just let down by yeah by the edit and the script and by it just not being a very accomplished piece of filmmaking. Yes. Um, the only person who comes out with any glory, as we've mentioned, is Fred Gwynn. But I think almost everybody else is absolutely fine. Like, I really, really, really hate slating actors. But honestly, Dale Midkiff as Lewis Creed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of from scene to scene, veers between not very good and 
actively bad. For some reason, he decided to play Lewis Creed uh, like he's been put under heavy sedation. Like he's got some real sort of serious clinical depression that is never explored in any kind of way. But that leaves him nowhere to go later on when things get really, really bad. What, as an actor, I would want to do is to be in a reasonably good place, starting a new job, You know, he's got this lovely family, just moved to a lovely new house. Yeah, there's trucks on the road, but we'll deal with that. What I wouldn't be doing is wandering around sort of mumbling and looking sort of vaguely miserable all the time. Because as an actor, that leaves me nowhere to go when, oh shit, the cat's dead. Which also, actually, and this again is a problem with the direction as well, the way he's been, and and the screenplay, the way he's been sort of uh, directed to deal with this is like, oh, the cat's dead. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen. I'm going to have a phone call with my children and I'm not going to be able to say any words because the cat's dead. No, no, I'm, I'm not a father myself, but if my child's cat has died, it's like, ah, shit. Fuck, I got to deal with that. Mm, How am I going to break that to her? I don't know, but I will. Okay. Yeah. We'll deal with the cat in the most humane way possible. Okay, I'll prise it up from the ground and... Put it in a bin bag. Leave it in the garage until let I'll bury it in the morning. I'll bury See, the I... damn thing in the morning. I'm like, mm, this is another little issue I've got with the dialogue, making everybody really unpleasant and unlikable. But yeah, Dale McKiff makes some very strange acting choices um, and actually doesn't execute any of them very well at all. I would... I had a look at his IMDb earlier. I would like to... Um, just just to sort of lighten the tone a little bit, I'd like to have a look at some of his success. So, um, <laughs> Dale Midkiff uh, has won five awards Oh, in his career. I would like to say right now, this is five more awards than I'm ever likely to win as an actor. <laughs> so, already, Dale Midkiff, he's been the lead in a movie, he's won all these awards, absolutely doing better than me. Do you know what? He's probably paid I'm his mortgage off. Oh, 100%. He's still working all as well. Anyway, he's uh, he, he's he's won five awards. <laughs> Four of them are um, they're actually their shared awards. So this is for uh, something called the Character and Morality in Entertainment Awards. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> this this is something I like. This is going to be a semi regular segment on this podcast. Is coming to these obscure awards. Um, <laughs> I, I just I just I just find them I just find them bonkers and, and ridiculous like awards generally I find the Oscars stupid but at least they oh, mean yeah. something to somebody uh, the, um, the awards are brilliant that sounds like sorry the character and morality what the character and the character and morality in entertainment awards that sounds so, like it was set up by the Mormons or something <laughs> well interesting that you say that the first ever uh, cami awards was held in 2001. At Memorial House in Salt Lake City. So um, that would be a a Mormon place. Is it for like upholding Christian values? Yeah. So uh, this is from the Wikipedia page. So the Cami Awards are given to films which emphasise character and morality. They were established to encourage the production and awareness of outstanding, uplifting and entertaining motion pictures with positive role models for building character, overcoming adversity, correcting unwise choices, strengthening families, living moral lives and solving life's problems with integrity and perseverance. (laughs) In the annual awards show, rather than giving Best Actor or Best 
Best Film Awards, the Camis give each film 10 statues to be divided among people who contributed at all levels of the production. So both cast and crew uh, get these things divvied up. And if you're not part of the Magic 10, then it's because everybody else on that production hated you. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that a little bit like that golden rule of like, if you can't work out who the arsehole is, it's probably you? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so um, Titanic is up for it so basically a titanic would get 10 mm-hmm. statues mm-hmm. and the cast and crew of titanic would have to work out who those would go to yeah exactly exactly um yeah, okay so they'd be they'd like divvy like four of them up amongst some of the cast so yeah dicaprio and winsley you'd assume would get a couple you'd think james cameron would get one well not um, based on the stories of working with james cameron i don't, I don't <laughs> think that would <laughs> i don't think it could be argued that that um that as director of titanic james cameron didn't make uh, yeah, a contribution didn't, didn't make a contribution <laughs> i don't think you could quite argue that can you give someone an award for, for upholding character and morality when they've been an absolute <laughs> arsehole <laughs> Well, it's a moot point because it wasn't nominated anyway. Well, um, no, there you go. That's absolutely, yeah. Okay, fair news, fair news. Uh, Would you like to know some of the sort of notable movies that have uh, received Cami Awards? I'd years? love to know. Yeah, they do uh, awards for theatrical releases and for made-for-TV movies. Dale Midkiff has won four of these. Blimey. Does that say more about the kind of projects he works on than it does about the quality of those projects? Interestingly, uh, two of them were for a movie called Love's Unending Legacy, which, I mean, never judge a movie by its title, but Jesus. Did he- he's starring and directed how did he get two god we are going down the rabbit hole now i really need to see a picture of this (laughs) loves what's it called loves unending loves unending legacy Uh, it is about a widow and her son returning home to be near her parents if these films were books it's the kind Mm -hmm. of one that you can buy serialized in supermarkets still for some reason like in a three pack yeah and you're like why who are the three people who are buying this that make it worth stocking there's there's also probably an entire wing dedicated to this kind of shit in um wh smith's um do you want to hear something really lovely which is related i would love to um, yes, so you know mills and boone um which oh, yeah. are romance books so mills and boone usually comes under romance and family sagas as a kind of category my husband richard's aunt sheridan used to be a, a librarian and she said that in libraries, it is a thing that in the romance section, at, so um, romance, family sagas and Mills and Boone, if you open them, they usually will have loads of initials written in the back because uh, people who read that kind of book often can't remember which ones they've read because they've read so many. So they'll initial the ones that they've read so that when they're looking for their next read, they'll know whether or not they've, <laughs> they'll know if they've read it or not. I just think, <laughs> I think that's gorgeous and i do think that there is somewhere in there there is a really good thriller like a cozy thriller that is to do with working out the initials written in the Mm. back of mills and boom books in a library but i can't quite put my finger on it so if anyone wants to take that idea and run with it i'd love to read whatever you put together um but yeah no (laughs) yes i love that love's unending legacy looks exactly like that kind of family saga thing um the other ones that he won character morality in entertainment awards for so the other ones that he won cammies for are called love's endearing promise um january jones is somehow in that oh uh, and the other one is Love Comes Softly. I love the movies. <laughs> um, uh, that's a horrible turn of phrase. <laughs> so yeah, those those are his camis. Uh, he's also won a Movie Guide Award for the film Love Comes Softly that he won a cami for. It was in the category Most Inspirational Television Acting. I'm going to repeat that. <laughs> Most Inspirational Television Acting. What does Kind of love mean? it. 
Uh, and let's, yeah, <laughs> let's get back to the inspirational acting in uh, Pet Cemetery. Cemetery. It is, it's sort of like, I get his acting in this, it feels a little bit like he didn't realise they were rolling. Like maybe he yeah. was just walking it through before the tape. Trying to remember his like, lines. Oh shit. <laughs> I think him and Rachel are miscast in the roles fundamentally, but I also think they're a really bad match together. I don't believe them mm-hmm. as a couple at no. all. No, there's um, no chemistry there. There is no chemistry there. I don't believe her at all as as that um, as the mother of those children, um, as a woman who is happy to have moved to that house. Yeah, I just didn't. I just didn't buy it at all. Thing I did. I did think that um, Pascal was fairly awful when he was being a friendly ghost. I thought he was <laughs> dreadful. That is fair. I did at least feel like he'd made a choice. Whereas uh, this is the thing, I don't I didn't feel like Dale or I can't remember the name of the actress who plays Rachel, but I didn't feel like either of them were making any choices. There was yeah. no like character there. They were just sort of there, you know? Yeah, I fully agree with that. Um I would like to have seen what what else Susan Blumet might have done with Missy. Yes. Because uh, she sort of showed up early with, with some heavy characterization yeah i was like okay you've 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 shown up to play today i would have been interested to see her do more in the movie but as we discussed she sort of just kills herself out of nowhere it doesn't add anything to it i think um again i mean stephen king in his writing has an enormous affection for kind of incidental weirdos and incidental kind of townsfolk and i think Again, like um, you know, Missy Dandridge as a character is one of one of those characters who, like, in the reading of the book, you absolutely adore her. And if she, if they had given her more space, more significance, uh, more respect in the film, then yes, she would have been one of those. But it just, she was just there, maybe because they just forgot to cut those bits. I don't know. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the character could have been completely just removed from the movie. Absolutely, and you wouldn't have noticed any difference. Let's talk about the um, the horror um, in this film and whether or not it's successful. It would be quite interesting to compare the design of the pet cemetery to the cemetery at the start of Frankenstein last week, because we are kind of in a similar area of uh, of sort of non naturalistic horror. Yes. Design. So yeah, for anybody who missed our discussion of Frankenstein last week, Frankenstein starts opens in a graveyard during a funeral and the design is so heavily inspired by German expressionism there's just nothing is going up on a straight vertical line all the gravestones are off at weird angles even the uh, the railings to one side they're off at a sort of jaunty angle as well that sort of adds to this air of unease and horror uh how would you compare that to the design of the pet cemetery the pet cemetery particularly um in the opening where the kind of opening shot of it is sort of panning very slowly across all the different graves and you've got that sound of the children's voices um reading out the um engravings on these kind of makeshift gravestones in the pet cemetery it looks like a halloween display outside someone's house (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it and it's got yeah. a kind of like um like a kind of lurid green effect over it and it is it is yeah. all a little bit like spooky wooky and i suppose the thing with the pet cemetery is there is this sort of conflict between actually the kind of macabre um yeah it's a graveyard with also the kind of like um childlike innocence the naivety the fact that this is somewhere that um children come to bury their pets um and express love and grief for losing a pet and get to kind of express that and 
you know, the reason Pet Cemetery is spelt wrong is because it's supposed to be that it's a kid has written out the word cemetery and just spelt it wrong. That sort of tug between, well, the conflict at the centre of it where, um, you know, Rachel really desperately wants to shield her children from the um, concept of death. Whereas um, Judd and, no, Lewis doesn't even really seem to give a fuck. Judd wants to introduce them to the concept of death um, yes. to get them comfortable with it. But it looks like a cartoon. Yeah. Well, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right when you say it looks like somebody's Halloween display on the front, <laughs> the front lawn. No, it's absolutely right. Um, the, the sort of the colours of it all oh, and all the, the, oh, the cobwebs hanging on the gravestone <laughs> and oh, the dry ice. All yeah. the dry... Why is there so much dry ice everywhere? But then as well, there's that skunk, exactly like you said, there's a skunk and it's like, oh, it's a critter. It's like, what yeah. is this? Is this like... Yeah. I don't know, Muppets do Halloween. It was really weird. Yeah. Here's the thing. I, I think Stephen King's books are better than he thinks they are. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because I, th- I think, I think that this is what Stephen King is almost always aiming for in his books. But he's I think too this, good. I think, yeah, but he's, but he, but he does it too well. <laughs> he creates worlds and characters that are too compelling. He, he misses, he misses the mark of this. I think this is exactly what he's aiming for. This, to me, feels like Stephen King's ideal adaptation of one of his books. That's so interesting because like (laughs) the sense of dread that builds up throughout the novel, it is oppressive. It is so potent. It's one of the most remarkable things about that book, about how actually that Stephen King manages to build that sense of dread. I didn't feel any sense of dread watching this film. I I felt a sense of inevitability, but Mm -hmm. I didn't feel a sense of dread at all. Sure. I kind of did... Well, I guess I kind of did. I felt like the character of Judd in the film is slightly more ambiguous because is he a kind of friendly next door neighbour who wants to help them out or is he a kind of sinister old man who's luring Lewis Creed down a weird path towards weirdness? Um, and I felt like that was slightly more ambiguous in the film. I think as well because he, he is quite a frightening. There's a moment when he gets down on um, Ellie's level and introduces himself to her and he has got quite a frightening face, actually. Um, okay. I, I haven't watched the, um, the more recent adaptation, but it's John Lithgow, isn't it, in the role of Judd? And I think that he is a slightly less frightening... He's got a slightly cosier face. John Lithgow's less frightening yeah. than Fred Gwynn? Yeah. No. Yeah. You, no. He's got a really kindly face. <laughs> he does. I think Fred Gwynn's got a kindly face as well. There's a yeah, reason he's he got works as Herman Munster. He's got quite I mean, he's, scary he's quite team. imposing. He's quite, yeah. you know, he's a big guy. But so yeah. is John Lithgow. Well, <laughs> I mean, you've seen you've seen you've seen Dexter. How can you how can you not be scared of John Lithgow? Well, no, but that's why I think De- that's why he's such a, a successful villain because he's like he takes you off guard. Whereas sure. um, Fred Gwynn looks a little bit like he could be a slightly sinister presence. I don't know. That's that was just my interpretation, and I think that the sure. kind of there is that element of ambiguity. I don't know. Yeah. What did you think about the? Do you think that that sense of dread translated well into this film from the book, or no, no, not not really. There, yeah. Well, the whole the whole film is foreshadowing, like from from the very beginning when it's well, indeed, from the very start when Gage almost gets run over. It's like, oh yeah, this is going to come back every time somebody goes to cross that road. Pretty much. A truck goes by at speed. So that, on one level, is foreshadowing. There's also other little moments. Like there's a bit where Gage is pushing a truck around on the end of a pole and he crashes it into a box. It's one of his little, uh uh-oh, 
moments. It's like, ah, yeah, more foreshadowing. Yeah, every step mm. of the way, the film is telling you something bad is going to happen with this road. And it's not like, what was it we were talking about that was like misdirection? It was the T-Rex. Yes, that's it right. Was... Yeah, when we were talking about Jurassic Park, it keeps your focus on the T-Rex for so long as like, ah, oh, this is going to be the oh, big scary, big scary, that you don't notice the velociraptors coming for you. Th- this keeps your eyes on that road and that road is what you need to be scared <laughs> of. <laughs> there's, there's, no, sort of... there's no double bluff. No, there's no double bluff. It's just sort of anti-truck propaganda, <laughs> if, uh, if I could go so far as to say. <laughs> well, hey, you know, if we wanted to really get into it, there is this, the danger of the new world, the road, the tarmac, the trucks that come. There is the connection to the ancient, the land, the earth, yeah, which the, is imbued the Native with American power. burial ground. Native American burial uh, ground, the Wendigo, which actually they don't, they, that didn't transfer over into the film at all, did it? But no. all of that stuff is like, oh, there's something going on here like i just i feel like with all the knowledge that he has of what could happen why on earth does judd show Um, lewis the burial ground what i've written i don't know if you can see this why judd why (laughs) it's a problem i've always had with this story since i first read it it makes no sense to me that Judd would do this and set these wheels in motion. Absolutely none. I like he, he even says something in the film. There's a line about a man doesn't always know why he does what he does, <laughs> and yeah. then he sort of gives some flimsy justification for what he did. There's also yeah. um, Judd has that line about um, men, the secrets that men keep, and mm-hmm. how like people think that it's women who are good at keeping secrets, but there are secrets that men keep that are like a different type of secret. And I'm a bit like, that sounds real profound. What does that what mean? Does that mean? What does that even mean? Like, it's a great yeah. line. Is it? Great line is in it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah, What does it actually know. mean? What does that mean? And also, you know, like, I have a fundamental problem with how Judd makes the choice to show Lewis the burial ground to bury the cat. And I then, I also have a problem with how Lewis just goes along with him. And it's like, hang on, we're in the middle of the fucking night. We've gone up to the pet cemetery. You've made me climb over this fucking barricade of twigs where I've fallen down. And we've climbed up through, we've gone over rocks and up through the mountains and up all over this stuff. And you've shown me this burial ground. And at no point is he like, they wait until they get back to the house for him to go, what did we just do, Judd? And I'm like, yeah. you absolute <laughs> flimsy nothing of a man why aren't you questioning this why why if your daughter isn't with you are you even bothering Mm. burying the cat at the pet cemetery do you know what i mean like if the whole point is that the pet cemetery is a thing that is created and curated by the children of the town Mm -hmm. it's a really important thing that she yeah and as a as a parent i think you have to know that it's a really important thing that she deals with that like i remember losing a cat when i was little and we buried her in the garden and it's important that's one of the reasons you get your kids a pet well there's that kind of there's that whole thing in there as well about like how actually rachel in a way is stunted in her development because she's never actually dealt with death she's never Mm -hmm. been able to deal with it and like in the book judd has a wife in the book and she dies and that's actually the Mm -hmm. first point where they come up against kind of death as a concept because Rachel won't go to the funeral and Lewis is having yes. to like make it make excuses for her not being there and that is what prompts the conversation about Zelda Rachel is trying to hold her children back from confronting it but then all she's doing is kind of giving them a complex about it whereas Lewis is trying to kind of shove their faces in it more in order to get them to deal with it but maybe that'll fuck them up and it's this whole question 
You know, one of the reasons that I feel unsafe in the hands of this movie is that it doesn't look away from so much. It doesn't really shy away from showing you things. That starts fairly early on when Pascal dies and you got half of his head falling out the back. But also when the, when the cat is dead, it's an extra detail that is the sort of detail that you would find in a Stephen King novel, that it's frozen and frozen to the ground and he has to like pull it up and pull it off. It doesn't, it doesn't blink from that. And mm. I really, that's something that I think this film does really well. That's one of the things that I like about it because that's one of the things mm. that, that makes me feel something. You know what I mean? And then when we get to Zombie Gage on his rampage. It's the cutest, <laughs> cutest zombie that ever there was. Unfortunately as well, one of the least convincing puppets that stand in for a zombie child. But there's a couple of shots where Gage is up in the loft and the puppet mm. just like falls out, falls out of the hole like it's yeah. leaping at Lewis. But unfo- And then he's like fighting this puppet, but it isn't particularly good and it's so unfortunate. Yeah. There is a bit though where after after he's been injected with the syringe, mm. he sort of toddles off around the corner and then it follows him and just watches him fall down. And I'm like, they got that kid to do a fucking great fall and I'm pretty yeah. sure he banged his head. <laughs> Pretty sure he banged his head on the wall there. Oh, the oh interestingly, also, uh, when Lewis tumbles out of bed, mm. I'm certain he cracked his head on the bedside table. I, I had to exactly. watch it back twice. I was like, fucking hell, you've done yourself there, mate. <laughs> I, I thought exactly the same thing. I thought, Christ, he really cracked his head there. It was a different time, Ed. Not that different, to be honest with you. Why was I watching this? It was like a reel of like um, times actors have hurt themselves, and possibly prompted by uh, him cracking his head on the bedside table. But like yeah. um, that bit in uh, Django Unchained where Leonardo DiCaprio hacked his hand open on a broken glass and just kept oh, going. Oh, yeah. You've got to keep going. Yeah, particularly on a film like that, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake if you stop going. I remember, I was can't remember who I was talking to, but it was someone, they'd done a Dr. Pepper advert. In the advert, they were just walking along as normal, but all this extraordinary stuff was happening around them. And the uh, the final shot was him jumping through skipping ropes that were going separate ways. And at one point, mm. a producer came up to him and were like, we don't want to put any pressure on you, but every time you don't get that right, we, it's wasted £10,000. So if you could just... <laughs> Um, if you could just try and get it right this sooner rather than later, that'd be really great. And then it's like, well, of course I'm not going to get it right now. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never work in this town again. <laughs> Awful pressure. Yeah, grim. Yeah, um, Gage falls over very well. He's a very scary kid. Apparently, um, the chap mm-hmm. who did the makeup on Zombie Gage is Heather Langenkamp's mm-hmm. husband, who played Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street. And apparently, um, the makeup artist would ring up um, Heather Langenkamp, who was making a film somewhere else, and be like, mm. it's really upsetting me that I have to make this beautiful kid look like a zombie. <laughs> That's really sweet. That effect of him biting judge throw out is fucking great isn't it no i'm already done by that point no it's the it's the slash it's the, it's the slash tendon. of the achilles tendons and yeah. that um yeah i'm not even watching what he does to judge <laughs> for the rest of that scene because that that scalpel goes in so fucking deep that is such a great effect it's so gnarly it's such I love a it. great effect like seriously full props to the makeup department for that it is that is brilliant. something about this film that i do think is outstanding is that the um makeup effects like the makeup effect of pascal's head all of the stuff with judge's throat that achilles tendon shot the weeping eye socket at the end in that sort of final yeah. shot when uh, when rachel comes back and they have this embrace yeah. it's just like this fluid just seeping from the eye socket down the face and yeah 
what I love about that final shot as well is that originally that wasn't how it ended Um, there's another there's another cut of the film that has the ending which is actually closer to the ending of the book which is much Mm. more ambiguous where dead Rachel comes in and they just sort of acknowledge each other whereas in this one it is very clear that she comes in and kills him and they were like yeah okay pushing for it to be a um, a murdery ending and I'm I love that they were like oh okay you're gonna make us reshoot the ending then fine we're gonna give her a weepy eye socket and a gammy face and all this amazing prosthetic special effects stuff it's great (laughs) what I like to assume is that after she's stabbed him to death she then goes and buries him in the pet cemetery so they all come back as a lovely happy zombie family that's what I assume happens down the line is they just sort of yeah reanimate everybody and they're just a lovely zombie family in their little zombie place maybe we need to watch Pet Cemetery 2 in order to (laughs) Confi- <laughs> even the poster put me off i was like oh dear <laughs> yeah it's got no, a sort it, of children it, of the corn five vibe about it that poster yeah, it's it real looks bad really crap i'd like to talk about zelda if i may oh yeah let's because actually before i read or watched pet cemetery zelda in this film is one of the things that i'd heard most about about being really frightening i think absolutely undeniably it's an incredible makeup effect um oh, on yeah. zelda really incredible <laughs> stuff on the back the spine and everything yeah it's great ed i'd like to open a discussion up with you if i may about something which i have noticed and i don't know whether i'm bothered by it or whether i have just noticed it and would like to talk about it okay that is men playing monstrous women in films yeah this is an example of one um but the thing that kind of sparked it for me was just completely coincidentally in the same week i saw barbarian in the cinema which has a monstrous mother she's called the mother played by a man in heavy prosthetics i also saw wreck which features a um, monstrous woman played by a man in prosthetics mama um starring jessica chastain in which the mother the monstrous mother is played by a man in heavy prosthetics is that right i didn't know that there's just there's a few and i was like Mm -hmm. that's interesting that bothers me am i being unreasonable um Like, why is it bothering me so much? And it did come up briefly in the documentary about Pet Cemetery that I watched about how apparently they saw loads and loads of women and it was like a feminine vanity that no women wanted to become that ugly for the role. So they searched for a man. I remember I was play where the character was supposed to be very, very ugly. And because I'm a fat lass, it was like, but also if we give you a um, a London accent, that will equal ugly to people. It almost kind of going like no don't worry you are you're um don't worry you are pretty it's just that mm-hmm. we can make you into an ugly character by making you have this particular accent and i just wondered if it's something to do with that of like it's always like what is the most monstrous version of a woman a man in prosthetics mm. i don't know i don't I, I genuinely don't know um what the answer is about this i just would really love your um opinion is it even a thing i don't know i might be about to disappoint you i'm not sure i've got much of an opinion they saw a whole, a whole load of women for the part but so they they, they, they saw loads of women for the part but no fem- no women were willing to become that mm. ugly. Which I just think is patently bullshit. Well, <laughs> it's just so obviously it, bullshit. <laughs> it is, but at the same time, I can almost buy that of actresses in Hollywood. Yes. If I'm perfectly yeah. honest. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about their career going forward as well, if this is what's on my show reel. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. work is that going to do for me in the future, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, these aren't the parts that I want to play. I want to be beautiful leading lady, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that being said, there are always excellent character actors and actresses mm-hmm. who are willing to be as ugly as you want them to be. Yeah. So if they'd looked a little harder, they would have found somebody. There's a nugget to be picked at. Coincidentally, I just happened to watch quite a lot of films in quite 
quick succession that all featured a man in prosthetics playing a monstrous woman mm. and I was like oh yeah. I don't that's there, there's something in there either yeah. way I think that it's a great performance as Zelda and um, and she's real scary <laughs> yeah I, I don't think that plotline is well developed enough but I think no. the performance is great and the prosthetics are fantastic as to your question I yeah I would also be interested to know how the trans community feels about the implication that the ugliest version of a woman is a man a man in prosthetics yeah exactly uh, you know I yeah I think that there are probably quite strong feelings in the trans community about that as well well uh, it's kind of it's almost not like ugly it's, it is monstrous it's about monstrous, being yes, monstrous that's the word, I've been looking to see if people who are cleverer than me have written any articles about this because I was like I can't be the only person who's noticed this and I don't even know if I am bothered I kind of want someone to tell me how to feel because I feel like Mm. I should feel something and either it isn't a thing shut up or it is a thing and here is why I feel a way about it so yeah I I implore listeners if you have any opinion on this I would love to hear some cleverer opinions than mine yeah because on stage as well you had um, Bertie Carvel playing Miss Trunchbull in Matilda the Musical that's a really Um, good point It, it isn't drag that isn't what it is no. you know like there are some actors who are um obviously there's doug jones who we touched mm-hmm. on um during our top 10 movie monsters bonus episode mm. an actor who has done a lot of like character work in prosthetics by virtue of being quite tall and thin i think but there is another chap uh, called javier botet who has done loads of stuff he um he does a lot of the kind of monster and creature work in it uh, the most recent it films he plays mama in mama um but again he's kind of very very tall and quite thin and it's this kind Mm. of he's like a very physical performer so is able to kind of get into these prosthetics and then do amazing physical work but i find it difficult to believe that there aren't any women who would be able to do that if you're after an actor with a certain build you need an actor with a certain build yeah Um, and if what you need is somebody who's six foot seven and very 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 thin then your pool of options is quite Limited. limited yeah yeah thinking about sort of actresses with imposing builds you got somebody like Gwendolyn Christie but she's doing all right for herself as it is yeah 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 she she might not be so interested in that kind of work there's your lady Um, I can't remember what her name is but the actress who plays nun the nun in the nun I haven't seen the nun but I'll take your word for it she's got the most extraordinary face she's uh, Mm -hmm. incredible to look at Uh, yet again very tall and imposing I don't know what point I'm even trying to make Ed I just thought it was interesting (laughs) and it was a good moment to bring it up because we were talking about Zelda so yeah I, I, um, I would love to hear from our listeners if there's anything in my griping or if i'm just being overly sensitive <laughs> um, Ed, um, have you got anything else that you'd like to say about pet cemetery yeah i would like your assistance <laughs> oh god <laughs> i would like your help untangling this line so when lewis is uh, approaching zombie church with his big yellow eyes yeah um he's gonna put the syringe in him and and kill him he's giving him the meat he goes today is thanksgiving day for cats but only if they come back from the dead (laughs) what does that mean I mean, Ed, uh, I don't think there's a right lot else to say, um, but I do think it's probably time that we sort out what we're going to be watching next time. So. I think it is. So, three stages. What you would have picked. Yep. What you think I would have picked. Yep. 
and what I actually have picked. And you remember, I picked this very early on in our cycle. Do you remember I texted you? Yeah, like, you were like, I've sorted it. I, I feel quite strongly about what I think you've picked. A kind of similar line to what I would have done. Um, I think it would have been really interesting to look at another Stephen King adaptation. Which one I would have gone for is really difficult to say, whether or not I would have gone for something that I know and love already and holding high esteem. I kind of think that would be quite boring though, because we'd get into a Jurassic Park tangle and just be gushing over misery again or something. Yeah. So um, I probably would have gone for something that I haven't seen, Salem's Lot, or we'd be doing something like one of the really obscure things, or uh, maybe even um, kind of sidestepping within Stephen King's own genre writing and we'd be looking at Dark Tower, or which came out only a few years ago. Now, what I think you've done, I think you've picked the Green Mile. Oh... But you haven't, have you? No, no. It's a, <laughs> I, you know, I love the Green Mile. It's yeah. wonderful. But I am considering uh, your um, hatred of feeling your feelings. So <laughs> I really appreciate. I'm it, not but... on this occasion gonna <laughs> gonna make you watch the Green Mile. But hey, I did. I did say that when you do when you do choose it, I will watch it gratefully. I'll be grateful for what I'm given. Stephen King doesn't really want to upset people, and. Pet Cemetery is, I think, his most upsetting book, certainly of the ones I've read. But um, it's kind of, it's upsetting in a really good cathartic way because it is, yeah. it's it's dealing with the stuff that we have to deal with as human beings throughout our lives. It's dealing with grief yeah. and um, how to talk to your children about difficult subjects and how to cope with childhood trauma and how to do all of those things. And it's just got this mm-hmm. wonderful kind of spooky setting that means you it's far enough removed from yourself that you can kind of look at it without feeling yeah. like you're in it. It's why horror is the best of the genres sure <laughs> but i think i think uh, stephen king is to horror literature what steven spielberg is to cinema they both have this incredible warmth and they're all they're both sort of really grounded in that mm. kind of americana aesthetic as well largely um but they they both got this warmth that neither of them want to hurt anybody you know what i mean anyway tell me <laughs> stop diverting <laughs> so uh yeah no i've i've not I've not picked uh, Stephen King. We've done a couple of weeks of horror with Frankenstein and now Pet Cemetery, So I wanted to steer away from there. And I didn't have all that many options when I was looking through the cast and crew. But I did have a look at uh, Fred Gwynn's CV. And what I've picked is a movie that I really don't know anything about. It's a movie that I hadn't even actually heard of, but it is quite a well-regarded comedy from the early 90s. So this was uh, Fred Gwynn's final theatrical movie. He played Judge Chamberlain Haller in the crime comedy My Cousin Vinny. Oh! that's what we're going to watch. That's streaming on Disney Plus at the moment. It stars Joe Pesci and a young Marissa Tomei, and it's about two New Yorkers accused of murder in rural Alabama while on their way back to college, calling the help of one of their cousins a loudmouth lawyer with no trial experience. It's that sounds great. Really <laughs> well regarded. When I when I had yeah. a, a sort of look and poke around on the internet about it, people really like it. It's got a bit of a cult following, and I'm really excited because yeah. it's a film that I don't know anything about outside of what I've just said. Yeah, me too. Totally new to me. Love Joe Pesci. Love Marissa Tomei. Tomei. Yeah. Tomei. 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 I usually Tomei. say. Th- that sounds fantastic. Um, and it's on Disney Plus. Yeah, Disney Plus. And yeah, if we've got nothing else to add. Oh, um, I just want to say, Ed, happy tenth episode. Hey, happy tenth episode to you too. We should have got a cake. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and so I guess all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please do rate it 
and uh, subscribe and if you can auto download as well so you don't forget that really helps us out that's all lovely stuff uh, also tell your friends tell your enemies tell your postman tell everybody about it spread the word also please do get in touch uh, through any of our social media channels so instagram TikTok and indeed the email address as we mentioned earlier moviechain at outlook.com we get such a buzz from hearing from you so uh, yeah we do keep promising that we're going to actually look at some of these on the show and we are getting to it and all that's left to say is thank you very much and we love you lots bye goodbye bye <laughs>